Hello, and welcome to episode 87 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. We'll get to my annual interview with Samuel Trevetti of the ACLU about the recently concluded Supreme Court term in just a second. But first, the news. Last week, the Michigan Supreme Court held the state of Michigan was not liable for holding someone for 17 months for failure to register when, by law, that person was not legally required to register. Uh, Our Chief Justice, Bridget Mary McCormick, had a blistering dissent in which she said, I would reverse the Court of Appeals judgment and reinstate the Court of Claims order denying the defendant's motion for summary disposition. The citizens of Michigan would be surprised, indeed, to learn that Michigan law provides no recourse for blatantly lawless incarceration. I find this case very disappointing. The state should be responsible for unlawfully incarcerating its residents. Otherwise, there is nothing, aside from wishes and dreams, incentivizing a state to be careful about incarceration, which is the ultimate deprivation of liberty aside from death. Safe and Just Michigan also held another webinar last week. We talked about the business case for criminal justice reform with an all-star panel of economists and directly impacted experts. I will include a link to this uh, webinar in the show notes. Okay, let's get to my interview with Samuel Trevetti. Samuel Trevetti is a senior staff attorney in the Criminal Law Reform Project, working closely with the ACLU's Campaign for Smart Justice. He speaks and writes nationwide on criminal law and prosecutorial reform issues, and has been published very widely. Uh, in what is thankfully becoming an annual event, Samuel is jo- joining me to help summarize the recent Supreme Court term. Welcome back to the podcast, Samuel. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be back. Uh, usually I start by asking for people's origin stories, but since you've already been on before, uh, why don't you tell everyone something that they might not know about you or something fun that happened in a year where people have not generally been having a lot of fun? Ah, that's a good one. Um, something fun that happened to me is that, uh, because we're all working remotely, uh, I'm currently coming to you from a cabin in North Carolina where I'm with my family, uh, and it has been uh, a, a blissful reprieve from the chaos happening outside. Um, and so I'm, uh, uh, I'm not looking forward to going back to real life in D.C. It'll happen eventually. But for now, um, it's been pretty nice out here. I feel like I'm well, almost that's... in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> that's great to hear. I mean, the, the being outside and being away from D.C. part. <laughs> Uh, so let's start with uh, a bunch of decisions that really weren't decisions. So let's start with uh, Razor v. DeSantis in Florida. Just around a week ago, we found out that the court declined to intervene in this case and allow people who earn the right to vote through Amendment 4 to actually vote if they haven't paid the entirety of their criminal justice fines and fees. This goes back uh, to the governor and the legislators uh, kind of demand that a sentence is only fi- fully served when fines and fees are paid, Correct. Yeah, that's right. And obviously, the core of this case is about voting rights. And there are much smarter people than I um, who do this work, uh, including at the ACLU. But underlying the case, obviously, is this insatiable need for Americans to punish one another. And that's what uh, is at the heart of, of these voting rights cases that have to do with disenfranchisement. So I think your your history of the of the case is is exactly right. You know, Florida voters overwhelmingly uh, approved uh, Amendment 4, giving formerly uh, incarcerated people with felony convictions um, the right to vote back. Republicans were mad about this um, and passed a law requiring them uh, to pay certain fines, fees, and restitution, uh, even though the state of Florida has now admitted that it cannot figure out (laughs) how how much uh, those amounts are for a lot of people, um, or even whether people have actually paid them off. Um, and yet, through a sort of torturous ride up and down um, the district court in the 11th Circuit in Florida, um, and despite both the district court and the 11th Circuit at one point approving of the plaintiff's case and granting injunctive relief, um, uh, for some reason, the most recent opinion out of the 11th Circuit was to uh, dissolve the district court's stay 
um, thereby reinstating these requirements to pay the fees, um, although it did so with no opinion whatsoever. And then the Supreme Court followed suit, um, again, giving no reasons whatsoever. So now um, folks in Florida are really in this, this awful purgatory where their right to vote is unclear, uh, whether they have to pay is unclear. In fact, whether they will be prosecuted for attempting to vote having not paid um, is now unclear, uh, pending at least uh, a full appellate argument uh, in mid-August. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is disappointing from the perspective of the right to vote, right? And, and Sonia Sotomayor's dissent rightfully focuses on the right to vote and the Supreme Court's increasingly um, antipathetic view to, to voting rights. Um, but as I said at the top, uh, this is about punishment uh, for crime. Um, and so that's where, you know, I, I'm sure that's where you see it from as well. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you raise an important point, which is that over the last uh, several years, it seems like the court has uh, pretty roundly uh, decided against uh, people trying to get the right to vote or to protect the right to vote. Do you have any kind of larger feelings about kind of that direction in the court's jurisprudence? Yeah. Um, you know, if we're talking, if we're speaking more broadly, this, this term was yet another bad one for voting rights. Um, you know, you, we had the, the really disappointing decision out of Wisconsin, uh, where despite forcing folks to put their lives on the line with COVID rampant, um, the Supreme Court upheld a change in dates, um, for early voting, uh, and, and you know this follows in a series of cases over the last few terms, and really going back to Shelby County um, in the in the early 2010s and before that, um, where you know this this Supreme Court has pretty much rejected um, every attempt to expand the vote and supported every attempt to shrink the vote. Um, and what I what I find um, you know, sort of fascinating and frustrating about that is that you know. Especially this term, folks gave John Roberts a lot of credit for solidifying the institution of the Supreme Court and bringing it to a more centrist place. Um, and that's partially true. There were some, some you know, encouraging decisions on things like LGBT rights um, and, and the Trump v. Vance decision on the president not being above the law, which I hope we'll talk about today. Um, but as much as John Roberts is interested in preserving the institution of the Supreme Court, he doesn't seem all that interested in preserving the democracy that underlies it. Um, and uh, I think that extends to the criminal justice realm where uh, there have been a few justices who have consistently um, sort of supported uh, the rights of criminal defendants um, against challenges by states to restrict um, their rights. Um, but John Roberts hasn't always been one of them. And so, again, uh, and this is sort of, the, you know, the Razor v. DeSantis case is a sort of amalgamation of both, where we see a court trying maybe to tax center and retain some credibility on individual issues. And yet when it comes to, uh, you know, the most marginalized amongst us trying to vote or trying to reenter society after finally escaping mass incarceration, we don't see that same sort of um, you know, support. And, you know, turning to some of the more criminal justice uh, related cases, one of the most important kind of non-decisions kind of in this unique moment where whole communities are reconsidering their relationship to police and policing uh, was this Baxter versus Bracey uh, decision on qualified immunity. Would you like to talk about that for a second? Yeah. And this one is supremely disappointing, as you indicate. Um, I think the background here uh, is that we are obviously in a national reckoning about policing and police accountability. Um, and, you know, there, there's sort of an old saw that says the Supreme Court tends to follow public opinion, right, rather than create it. And if you can just raise enough awareness about an issue and bring the country along with you, um, then the Supreme Court might actually change its ways um, and reverse itself on an important issue. You know, we always we always use gay marriage uh, as the prototypical example. I thought we had done that here. Um, I don't think that many people knew what the hell qualified immunity was about six months ago. 
Um, and through the concerted efforts of people like you and uh, activists on the ground and lawyers um, bringing qualified immunity cases up and down the circuits, we had finally gotten a case to the Supreme Court that squarely asked the question, um, is qualified immunity legal? And so obviously I should take a step back for, for listeners who, who don't know, um, you know, qualified immunity is the judicially created doctrine, the Supreme Court created doctrine that says police officers and other public officials, but in, you know, in our, in our day and age, I think police officers are front of mind. Police officers cannot be sued civilly, that is by the victims of any of their misconduct in civil court for money damages um, unless they violated a constitutional right. And the kicker is that that constitutional right had to be, quote unquote, clearly established in the circuit where the violation happened. Um, and in effect, the clearly established prong of qualified immunity has meant that unless there was a case exactly like the one before the court, um, allegedly, as the theory goes, the police officer didn't have noticed that what they were doing is wrong, um, and therefore they can't be held civilly liable for it. So in the Baxter v. Bracey case, our, our client, um, Mr. Baxter, had a dog sicked on him, even though he was prone and had his hands up and was clearly succumbing to uh, the upcoming arrest, still police officers sicked a dog on him who bit him. Um, and although there are there have been police dog bite cases in the past, um, the Supreme Court decided to ultimately uh, decline to review this case. Um, and so despite being in a national moment about police accountability, the Supreme Court uh, really dropped the ball by not taking this case up right now. And there's such, you know, what we found, I think, over the years is there's so few uh, possibilities that are uh, likely for people who have suffered from abuse by the police to get any kind of uh uh, to, for those those problems to be addressed uh, in court or anywhere else. Uh, so I think this is an example of a, a doctrine that really in a lot of ways seals off uh, the police from accountability. Would you say that's fair? I agree with that. Um, we have seen that prosecutors are typically very reluctant to charge officers with crimes, right? That's because they have this sort of inextricably intertwined and uh, relationship that is that creates this conflict of interest where prosecutors don't want to charge the folks that they work with. Um, civilian oversight boards have, have typically been sort of toothless. Um, uh, it's, as we all know now, it's, it's very difficult to, to fire police officers who commit misconduct. And so suing them civilly uh, is one of our, as you say, one of our last bastions for uh, police accountability and qualified immunity is an extremely high hurdle um, whose, whose viability is questioned, let me just say, across the ideological spectrum. Conservatives hate it because it finds no support in the text of Section 1983, the civil rights suit, the, the civil rights statute under which people sue. Uh, it's wholly judicially created. Progressives hate it because it bars the uh, racial accountability and and um, uh, and recompense for victims of, of police brutality. It, it's on extremely, extremely thin ice. Uh, judges across the country recognize that. Scholars across the country recognize that. And yet the court seems not ready to, to recognize that. And until we have that and many, many other uh, reforms, including potentially divestment from police, and obviously this all ties into the larger discussion that we're having as a nation, um, you know, qualified immunity won't solve all of our problems, but we will solve a lot of them. It certainly makes it a possibility that someone could at least have a avenue for trying to get some accountability. Do you see any uh, legal possibilities? You know, wh where are we in terms of uh, kind of the legal end of the battle to try to hold officers accountable when they go over uh, acceptable lines of behavior? That's a good question. Uh, first of all, I don't think the battle to end qualified immunity is over. Um, I think certainly we will keep bringing cases up. And as the drumbeat grows louder and more and more people oppose qualified immunity, we'll have our shots at the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, there are also legislative movement happening um, in order to say, 
create a national use of force standard um, that makes it much harder for police to justify uh, use of force. Uh, you know, that we, we had a win in California on that front um, saying that police officers can't have just thought their actions were reasonable, but that their actions had to have been necessary, right? I think that ought to be the national standard and there's some momentum in that direction. Um, uh, and so, you know, a, a legislative push is important. Um, I think uh, the wave of quote unquote progressive prosecutors around the country, while not a panacea, certainly um, is encouraging on that front. The more prosecutors we have who are willing to, for example, stop calling officers with histories of misconduct or lying on the stand um, can do what um, police departments themselves can't do effectively, right? Police departments say they want to fire bad cops, but can't because of things like union contracts. Well, if prosecutors can stand up for what's right and stop calling them, that will effectively render them um, Know, neutralize them. And so there are certainly other options for police accountability. Um, uh, but this one is a big one. And I hope uh, we will have a chance in, in a coming term to fix the fix the problem. So, um, you know, I mean, in my community, kind of the formerly incarcerated, incarcerated community, one of the biggest things that's happened in the last four or five months is the prevalence of COVID in prisons and jails. Um, a second kind of uh, non-decision decision was Williams versus Wilson and involved uh, COVID-19 in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, uh, particularly the Elkton facility in Ohio. Uh, many people might remember the video taken on a contraband phone of the person uh, in prison who was talking about people dying in his unit. Uh, that, vir that, that video went viral. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about this case and why you think the court might have declined? Yeah. And so this is, you know, COVID, um, you know, in many ways is, is the story of our time. Uh, and what is happening in jails and prisons with respect to COVID uh, is, is a humanitarian tragedy on a scale that I don't think people recognize. Um, and that video from Elkton really um, crystallized it for a lot of people, just how scared um, folks who are incarcerated right now must be and 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 rightfully so. Uh, uh, the rates of COVID contraction in jails and prisons are 500 times higher than even the very high and scary rate outside. The death rate is 300 times higher, uh, right? And yet, because of our society's willingness to throw people away once they um, are incarcerated, we have done very little about it. And and the Supreme Court this term, though not um, though their decision wasn't. Uh, as consequential as some of the district court and circuit court opinions, um, it still showed a sort of unwillingness to engage with what is clearly an emergency. So just to give the legal background, um, the ACLU and others have filed cases across the country seeking the immediate release of as many um, incarcerated people as possible from these facilities, at least until we can figure out how to stem the tide, um, because as you know, uh, the Eighth Amendment uh, prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And the Supreme Court has been clear that when there is an, a communicable disease inside prisons uh, and jailers have removed folks' ability to protect themselves from it, the jailers must protect them. Uh, that is enshrined in the Eighth Amendment. Um, and yet court after court in this country has declined to uh, to to grant that relief and get folks out of harm's way. And so in the Elkton case that was burning down from COVID, uh, just dozens and dozens of infections. It was really bad. It was really, really bad at Elkton. It got bad elsewhere as well. But Elkton, uh, we were able to secure a preliminary injunction, meaning um, the judge did order the, uh, the rapid release of medically vulnerable people out from Elkton. Um, when we secured that win, obviously the government appealed to the Sixth Circuit. Um, when the Sixth Circuit declined, at least initially, to stay that decision, the Supreme Court um, stepped in and did, at least for a short time, while the Sixth Circuit could um, could render a final opinion. And then, sadly, it did about a week later um, and lifted the injunction, therefore keeping people trapped. Um, and so I don't want to overstate the Supreme Court's role here, uh, Justice Sotomayor, granted a, a sort of administrative stay, not re reaching the merits, sort of allowing the Sixth Circuit to address the issues. Um, 
that was disappointing in and of itself. I think it was very clear that the district court had done its work. Um, it was very clear that this was an emergency situation. Um, and so for the Supreme Court to put its thumb on the scale of the government um, and keep these folks trapped even for a few days when we know how contagious COVID is, uh, was really disappointing. It seems like there's a long history on this court of deciding against petitioners and for prisons on most issues, but particularly on issues of cruel and unusual punishment. Do you kind of want to talk about some of the larger context uh, around that? Yeah, um, both the court or the, the federal judiciary and Congress uh, could not be more <laughs> aligned against the rights uh, of prisoners. Um, you know, one one aspect of these cases is the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which which I'm sure you know a lot about, but but basically creates all kinds of procedural hurdles before folks uh, in prison can seek relief for what we know are the abhorrent conditions that they live under, um, and especially. For something like COVID, that is that is a dire and fast-moving emergency, um, the procedural hurdles that the PLRA creates and that judges um, give deference to make it essentially impossible for an individual prisoner, or in the case of the of, of the lawsuits that we were bringing, you know, a class of prisoners, um, get out in any time frame that would actually help them stay healthy, um, and. So far, uh, the series of COVID cases that we and others have filed have only, judges have only reaffirmed their total unwillingness to see an emergency for an emergency and do what's necessary, instead hiding behind um, the PLRA and other procedural hurdles. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely scared for the state of the law on the Eighth Amendment. And I'm genuinely scared for the real human beings who are going to suffer because of it. Yeah, it is uh, quite upsetting. I mean, we've got, you know, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, a lot of places, uh, a lot of prisons without air conditioning who've turned off their fans so that there isn't transmission across the units. Uh, you oh. know, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, we have people who've died all over the country, just in Michigan, over 60, well, 68 people have died. Uh, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation. Is there, you know, do you think that there's any chance in the world that, uh, there'll be some other way to start to get courts or at least to get this court to, uh, start to think a little differently about this, or are we just going to have to come up with legislative solutions? So that's a good question. I think, um, you know, it is possible that the court will see another case. Um, I know that one is coming up through the Ninth Circuit in, in one of our lawsuits as well. Um, think that this is an area where um, we can't rely on the courts to move quick enough. And we need to convince legislators, governors, uh, prosecutors, sheriffs to do the right thing and drastically reduce intakes, drastically increase releases. Um, and that has happened in some places. Many of the largest jails in the country have, after at least we've applied some pressure, um, have reduced their numbers, have tried to thin out the population such that social distancing is possible. So I think that kind of drumbeat is going to be uh, what's effective here. So last year, we ended in a pretty bleak place on kind of death penalty issues. So finally, of the kind of non-decision decisions, should we talk a little bit about Barr versus Lead? You have what, what, what was that about? Yeah, um, speaking of bleak. So, um, so in late June, uh, the attorney general made an announcement that after a 17-year hiatus, and despite most of the country moving away from the death penalty, many state Supreme Courts or states um, abolishing the use of the death penalty, um, out of the blue, Bill Barr says that the federal government is going to start executing people again. Um Look, let's just put cards on the table. This had nothing to do with uh, a, a need uh, to to reinstate the death penalty or to, uh, you know, it didn't serve any real prosecutorial or penological purpose. It was because this government needed a distraction from um, the twin pandemics of COVID and um, uh, police accountability that it didn't like in the headlines. So it plucked the death penalty um, out of hibernation. Um 
and it used four real human beings um, to do that. And so, uh, so you know, execution dates were set, extremely hasty execution dates um, this month were set. Uh, and the legal issue that ended up before the Supreme Court uh, was that the federal government claimed that it now had, whereas it had not before, it now had a safe method of legal injection via a single drug uh, protocol called pentobarbital sodium, whereas it used to do, use a three-drug protocol um, that was actually part of last term's um, harrowing uh, decision in Bucklew. Now the government claims it has a, a safer alternative, so therefore it can move forward um, no problems. Um, of course, that's not the case, and uh, the the four men whose uh, execution dates were set um, filed a renewed Eighth Amendment uh, petition uh, in their district courts, um, arguing that there were there were real safety concerns with even this new drug, specifically that it could cause um, a buildup of foam in their lungs that could simulate asphyxiation or drowning. So we're being cruel and unusual punishment, or at least that's what they argued. Um, sufficient that the district court granted a preliminary injunction and put off their extremely hasty execution dates. Um, the federal government, again, for no reason whatsoever, because they hadn't executed anybody in 17 years, and these folks had been on death row for quite a while, um, sent an emergency petition to the Supreme Court, um, and uh, the Chief Justice, after putting it to the entire court, um, grant or lifted the injunction and allowed the executions to go forward. Yeah, I think they've unfortunately already executed uh, two people uh, since then, I believe. And, uh, you know, I mean, I remember we talked about Bucklew, I think it was Bucklew last year. Uh, I think that's the decision where the justices Kavanaugh and, uh, and Gorsuch were kind of joking back and forth about the appropriateness of firing squads and uh, hangings. Uh do you have any kind of feelings about, you know, where we can, I mean, are we just, is this just going to be, I mean, is this court just absent some tectonic shift in membership going to just be terrible on the death penalty? <laughs> is that just I, where we're at? Yeah, I think that's where we're at. I think um, the, well, you know, they have carefully crafted the law around um, Eighth Amendment challenges to be virtually impossible to clear because, as you remember from Bucklew, um, they actually force the defendant themselves to pick their poison, right? They have to themselves identify um, a, a safer alternative. And if they can't, uh, then, then the government is allowed to move forward with the government's chosen cocktail, even if there is credible evidence that it would be cruel and unusual. Um, and so they've stacked the deck against um, those uh, on death row. And so, no, I think yet again, um, this is an area where um, we, we need to work in the states. And I think, you know, we have been winning. I don't want to make, uh, there's lots of work to be done. Um, and we should live in a country where nobody is put to death by their state. Um, but executions have been declining across the country. We hadn't had a federal execution in 17 years. And I think the political context here is important and that if we can get a federal government who doesn't use the execution of human beings as a political stunt to distract um, from poll numbers, um, then we should continue that trend. But I don't think we should go to the Supreme Court to do it. One kind of interesting side note, uh, at least to me, uh, well, it's really depressing, but interesting is that one of the two gentlemen who has been executed since the family of the victims actually asked for them not to be executed. We have this kind of uh, situation a lot of times where prosecutors always say that there are four victims, but there's all these times that come up where victims have very different desires than prosecutors and prosecutors always seem to be willing to do exactly what the victims or, or survivors of crime uh, don't want them to do. Uh, do you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I have this uh, bolded and highlighted in my notes that uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, in in Bill Barr's uh, initial announcement that he would resume federal executions, he trotted out um, justice for victims as the reason why not only we had to execute these people, but had to do it uh, expeditiously, right? And then lo and behold, the very next day, 
um, the victims come out uh, and say that they don't want this. Uh, um, and you know, this is important for our national conversation about criminal justice reform, policing reform. Uh, I hear constantly from even prosecutors who uh, generally support some reform efforts, or at least want to be seen as supporting some reform efforts, that, well, the side of divestment or the side of transforming our system doesn't adequately take victims into account, and therefore they lack credibility, right? So victims get get trotted out as this monolithic prop, um, as you've indicated. Um, and yet, if victims themselves don't fall in line with the with the prevailing um, ethos of mass incarceration and mass punishment, then they're jettisoned, right? Um, then their opinions don't count. Uh, and so it's a, it's very much a one-way ratchet that I think law enforcement for too long has used, um, as I said, as a prop. And so I think this is this case is very telling, and I hope that our movement continues to be the one who actually um, cares about victims in that we actually listen to what they say. Um, and in many cases, that is not on the side of mass incarceration. All right, let's move to some cases that actually had decisions. Uh, the first one, Ramos versus Louisiana, was a case about unanimous juries. What was happening in Louisiana and Oregon prior to this decision? And what was this decision? Uh, um, what was happening prior to this decision in Oregon and Louisiana is that they allowed criminal juries to convict on less than unanimous votes, which is to say, if you have a 12-person jury in 48 states and all the territories, um, you can uh, you you have to get all 12 to vote for the conviction. In Oregon and Louisiana, you could win by a 10 to 2 or an 11 to 1. Um, the reason this is important, and I credit um, Justice Gorsuch in the in the majority and um, and Justice Kavanaugh in the concurrence for pointing this out. Um, this is a vestige of racism and slavery. Uh, so the reason that certain states allowed non-unanimous juries is as part of a suite of Jim Crow uh, legislation to dilute um, newly freed slaves um, or former slaves' power in all realms of society, including on juries. So if um, if you know, white American society wanted to keep convicting black folks of crimes now that they couldn't enslave them, um, they could neutralize any black votes on the jury um, by allowing their votes to be to be disregarded. And this was very overtly um, part of the legislative history in in both Louisiana and Oregon. Um, and and as I say to to Gorsuch's and and Kavanaugh's credit, they recognize this history as relevant um, to the discussion. Um, but ultimately, what was dispositive here is that the unanimous jury, has a long and important history in the United States. Um, and so Justice Gorsuch, as he is wont to do, um, goes through the history of what it means to have a, quote, impartial jury within the confines of the Sixth Amendment, decides that when we say an impartial jury, we have always meant an impartial unanimous jury. And to him, that, that history um, seals the deal. Uh, so, you know, Ultimately, the, the, this case delves into issues of stare decisis um, because there was a case out of Oregon called Apodaca, um, which seemed to uphold the uh, validity of non-unanimous juries. Um, but ultimately, Gorsuch finds reasons influenced by, informed by this racist history, but but also um, specific to the the right to a unanimous jury in American history. He finds those to be compelling reasons to overrule or ignore Apodaca. It's kind of weird, you know. I mean, we had a decision last year on juries from Kavanaugh that we talked about. And this year we have this one from Gorsuch joined by uh, Kavanaugh. And uh, they seem to be tuned into the race issue here. But on so many other issues, the death penalty, uh, cruel and unusual punishment, uh, elections, they seem to totally ignore or at least be less concerned with the question of race. Uh, do you have any kind of 
Have you been able to divine anything that kind of decides when they're going to be tuned in to the kind of, I mean, if you just think about how the death penalty is applied, it's, you know, pretty clearly racially disparate. So I, I just wonder if there's any way to, if there's a divining rod or anything to figure out when these guys are going to figure out uh, when race is relevant. Yeah, that's a really good insight. And I think race has to absolutely slap them in the face before they're going to recognize it. Um you know, in last year's decision, the Curtis Flowers decision, I mean, there were four, there were seven total retrials and four of them had to do with um, racial uh, racial striking of juries by a very overtly racist DA, right? Um, and even then, Kavanaugh, although again, to his credit, he recognized the racial elements of that case, made a very narrow ruling. Um, and here, again, there's a racist history, but the ruling is not ultimately on those grounds. And so... Um, I do not have a lot of hope uh, for the Supreme Court recognizing um, how significantly race plays a role, particularly in our criminal justice system. If they are going to um, uphold protections for criminal defendants, it is going to be almost certainly on the sort of originalist um, grounds that Gorsuch, very much to his credit, because he has been better on criminal justice than a lot of folks thought, and, and, you know, he ultimately wrote this opinion, um, uh, giving Mr. Ramos a second chance. Um, it's likely they're likely not going to be dispositive. Racial issues are likely not going to be dispositive, even though we know in real life um, racial issues are often dispositive in the real justice system. Um, and by the way, I'll just point out that um, Justice Alito in his dissent, which was unfortunately and disappointingly joined by Justice Kagan, um, uh, Justice Alito keeps the flame uh, of racism and um, or at least um, white fragility alive, um, taking pains to point out that uh, the majority opinion is just calling nice people racist, uh, even though it didn't ultimately uh, rule on the race question. And that's sort of mean. Right. <laughs> and that's all that's all that's all Alito really has to say about it. Um, even though, uh, you know, the majority clearly found that race influenced these juries and has a place in the discussion. It's kind of an interesting decision in that it's a solid majority, but there's a lot of judges concurring in part, some holding for different reasons, some dissenting, some dissenting in part. Uh, is there any significance to that or just? Well, Probably not for our discussion. I mean, a lot of the uh, the concurring opinions have to do, again, with stare decisis, um, more so than uh, the unfair jury question. Um, and I'm not saying that's not important. That's extremely important that the court clarify when it's going to um, stick with a decision and when it's not. Um, I think Kavanaugh is making a particularly concerted effort at clarifying that law. Um I think we've seen over the last few terms that uh, certainly Justice Thomas is on uh, a crusade to essentially end stare decisis, basically in a not so failed attempt um, to end Roe v. Wade. Um, So I think that's a lot of the reason for the various concurrences and dissents here. I think most people agree. uh, I I actually think that it was unanimous here that, um, that the unanimous jury has that sort of protected place in American history uh, and is part of the Sixth Amendment. Okay, our next case is, I think it's Collar versus Kansas, which is about the insanity defense. Uh, well, actually about what constitutes a floor for an acceptable insanity defense. In this case, the court held that the state need not find that someone could tell right from wrong uh, to be, uh, uh, to, is that a correct reading or my close? <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right on. So, um, you know, the question here, and this is actually, I'm glad you followed the last one with this one, because this is another question of sort of what norms are built into the criminal law and have been since the founding and before, um, that, that have become so fundamental as to, um, sort of require them uh, of states. Um, and so in the prior case, when a state tried to take away the unanimous jury, Gorsuch stepped in and said, no, this is a historically important part of our jurisprudence. Um, and the Sixth Amendment says you can't do that. Here we have the, the flip side, um, which is uh, Kansas has an insanity statute 
that limits the insanity defense to um, use at sentencing, which is not really an issue here um, and isn't really a defense at all, right? If you've already been convicted and are simply trying to mitigate that sentence, um, that's not a defense. Um, or at the guilt phase, limits it to undercutting your mental state, your mens rea. Um, and so Justice Kagan delivered a six to three majority that said, um, yes, we agree. The insanity defense is the sort of thing um, that is so rooted, uh, the, the language from the leading case is so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. She agrees with that. Um, and nearly all states have some form uh, of the insanity defense. Um, so she agrees with that premise and simply says that what Kansas has done, limiting the insanity defense to sentencing and attacking mens rea, is not abolition of the insanity defense. It's still there. And therefore, you haven't violated this principle that you can't get rid of sort of fundamental um, criminal protections. That's wrong. Uh, on a technical level that the dissent points out and commentators have pointed out. Um, uh, as many of your listeners will likely know, any defendant can attack the government's failure to prove mens rea in a given case. That's not a defense, that's the prosecution having failed their case, right? Um, and so it, you have effectively abolished the insanity defense if all you've done is allow evidence of mental um, defect um, via that avenue, right? And that, that and that's Breyer. That's the thrust of of Breyer's um, dissent um, and, and and the basics uh, of what has gone wrong here. Um, yeah, that that is that is the the basic problem with Kaler. Yeah, I can't say that I love this decision because, you know, like they seem to say that uh, medical science changes all the time and standards say all the time. So the requirement for what constitutes insanity should remain fluid. But what the, the decision really reads to me like is a race to the bottom, like where you say, as you just said, that there's uh, really uh, no effect. There, there could be a law that is, in essence made it impossible to claim insanity. Uh, and that, that seems problematic to me. Again, am I reading that right? Oh, that's right. That's right. And there's sort of, uh, there's a fundamental contradiction here where Kagan wants to leave room. Now, query why she wants to leave room. There's a strategic question as to why she's siding with the conservatives on this one. Maybe it's horse trading. I don't know. But in any case, she and wants the previous. to leave room. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, um, so, yeah, the... the she is saying she wants to leave room for states to experiment and to you know move along with the times. And yet she recognizes that there are certain principles that are so fundamental as to be not open to experimentation, right? And she just ends up on the, the wrong side of that line. Um, you know, what, what I think is interesting about this case and the previous case also is that although um, I couldn't agree more that Justice Kagan got it wrong and it's very important to preserve the insanity defense, um, just as I think it's important to preserve the right to a jury trial, um, we have to read both of these in the context of what mass incarceration really looks like right now in that there are no trials, right? We all know that 97 Oh, that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, and so, you know, I try to read all of these Supreme Court opinions, not for them in and of themselves, but how they'll actually Im implicate our movement and how we will be able to use them to move the movement forward. Um, and therefore, you know, this entire term is a little bit small bore in that way, in that um, we're still not attacking the fundamentals of the criminal punishment conveyor belt, right? We're not attacking the fact that prosecutors can use um, underhanded and coercive tactics to extract plea bargains in 97% of convictions. So while I'm disappointed with this case and I'm happy about the prior case, I think neither are necessarily as impactful as we think in terms of sheer numbers or dismantling the system that we're talking about. So the next case, Andrews versus Texas, is one of those rare situations where the court finds that counsel was somewhat incompetent, uh, which seems to point us towards Strickland v. Washington. Do you want to talk about Strickland first and then Andrus? Sure. So um, Strickland v. Washington is a supremely important case in that it, re it, it recognized that um, fundamental to a fair trial and fundamental to the right of counsel is that that counsel be competent. 
right? And so Strickland created a test that said, um, if your counsel is so deficient as to have um, undermined your defense uh, and that that undermine of your case and therefore um, you're going to get a new go at it. Um, and you're, you're right. These cases do not come up very often because the first prong of Strickland, whether there was deficiency, is an extremely high bar to clear. And so we're always happy to see the Supreme Court step in and recognize um, deficiency when it sees it. So in this case, you know, the facts very quickly are, are really harrowing. Um, Mr. Andrus was uh, one of many children to a mother who was unfortunately addicted um, to drugs and absent for much of their much of his young life. He was forced to raise his younger siblings, was at some point sent to um, juvenile detention for a very minor um, part in a crime wherein uh, in detention, he was given all kinds of psychotropic drugs. Um, he just had a very, very difficult life um, when he was then uh, uh, arrested and charged and convicted for murder. Um, but however tragic the facts of his actual life were, um, his representation was possibly more tragic in that his lawyer did not get any of this stuff into the mitigation portion of his, of his capital case. Um, didn't meet with him for eight months after the case started, met with him only a total of six times uh, outside of court in the four-year pendency of the case, um, virtually no investigation whatsoever. The mother who had every incentive to sort of defend her own mothering um, lied on the stand and despite lots of warnings that she would do that, you know, the, the lawyer made no no attempt to, to blunt that testimony. So, so this was sort of a cut and dried example of, unfortunately, the kind of lawyering that sadly um, the most vulnerable can get from time to time. Uh, and so you know, this was a this was curiously a, a per, per curiam unsigned opinion um, with a three person dissent from again Alito, who just spent his time tarring um, Mr. Anderson's reputation and reliving all the crimes that he committed or the crime that he committed, rather than engaging in. Um, conduct of the attorney. Um, but but so now this case has been kicked back to the Texas courts where they will decide indeed whether Mr. Andis was prejudiced by this performance. Um, and uh, while me sitting here have no doubt that it was, um, unfortunately, this isn't entirely a feel-good story because the, the state court could still find that despite this, this deficient performance, um, the outcome would likely be the same. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound as uh, as yeah, hopeful as I as I thought when I originally read yeah. through it. Uh, I feel as we've just as you just described that the history is that it's uh, not very easy to get counsel declared incompetent after the fact. Do you feel like this decision has made created any more of a viable pathway or cre- opened up any space for people to uh, have a better challenge for uh, incompetence? So I'm not so sure. I think this was pretty squarely um, within the confines of Strickland and the facts were so egregious that the court couldn't ignore it. Um, I didn't see anything doctrinally in the opinion that expands on Strickland, really. Um, so, no, unfortunately, you know, as I've said, th- this was a pretty small bore term um, for, for the court on criminal justice, um, except for so, so some of the sort of non-opinion opinions that we talked about earlier, but on the actual opinion, um, again, this was, this was a win. I'm really happy about it. Um, but, uh, but it's not going to create a sea change in public defense uh, or anything like that. Probably the most, I think, surprising case, uh, to a lot of people in this term was the McGirt case in Oklahoma. I've seen a lot of people on the right outraged that Oklahoma, kind of like Alito's dissent you were just talking about, that Oklahoma apparently didn't have jurisdiction to try a member of the Seminole Nation charged for sex offenses. Uh, do you want to talk about this case and what's kind of your basic take? Yeah, so um, th- this, like the voting case, is a little bit less about criminal justice and more about the underlying issue, which um, which is that, you know, America has brutalized, mistreated, and lied to uh, the indigenous population for generations, uh, stemming from the Trail of Tears, right? Wherein we uprooted um, tribes from their from their native home in Georgia and other places, 
um, made them trek thousands of miles west, um, many of them killing thousands of them, and relocated them to a land that wasn't theirs, but promised them that when they got there, the land would be theirs. And then over years and years and years, uh, the federal government um, sort of committed death by a thousand cuts to that promise, um, slowly set, stripping them of jurisdiction uh, over their own land, including uh, in criminal prosecutions, right? So even though the original treaty, um, uh, you know, concretizing everything that I just said, said that, um, you know, this would be Indian country uh, for purposes of the Major Crimes Act, um, uh, for years, the state of Oklahoma had still just been prosecuting um, folks like the plaintiff in this case, Mr. McGirt. Um, and so Justice Gorsuch's opinion uh, lays out this very sad history and says, no, we have to abide by our treaty obligations. Our treaty obligation says this would be Indian country, and therefore, for purposes of the Major Crimes Act, it is Indian country. And therefore, the state of Oklahoma has no jurisdiction for purposes of certain prosecutions, only the tribe and concurrently the federal government have um, jurisdiction. So I think um, it is it is a major win for the recognition of indigenous people, right? Forget about the criminal justice context. It's a major win in that realm. But I have to say, I'm not so sure how much of a win it is for criminal justice itself, because it doesn't fully relegate criminal prosecutions to the tribe. Um, where you might imagine that they would have a better sort of um, tie to the community um, and be less likely uh, to be to to impose harsh penalties on a people uh, that who, who who we don't consider ours, as the state of Oklahoma might have been doing. Um, unfortunately, the federal government still has concurrent jurisdiction here and is likely to use it in in, it, in at least some cases. And as we know criminal penalties at the federal level are often much harsher, even harsher than very harsh state penalties. And so I do worry very much about the next steps here being that the federal government, particularly under this administration, might just use this as an excuse to ramp up federal prosecutions of what used to be local crimes, if that makes sense. And the other uh, kind of pushback I, got, I saw a lot on this case was that uh, this essentially got rid of Oklahoma's jurisdiction, uh, basically that they legally would cease to exist as a state. <laughs> um, I'm guessing we sort of answered this already, but I'm guessing there's not a lot of uh, truth to that. No, I mean, if Ted Cruz is tweeting about it, you know it's wrong. Um, <laughs> Oklahoma continues to be a state to the city of Tulsa, where I used to live, uh, continues to I be I did a too. State. Oh, wow, that's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so no, uh, this was this was obviously limited to um, the Major Crimes Act. At least this decision was. Um, but from what I can tell, and I don't, I don't purport to speak on behalf of, of tribes or, or tribal leaders, but but I think they are interested in continuing to work hand in hand with the state of Oklahoma um, uh, as they always have done, right? Um, but this is an important recognition that this is uh, first and foremost their land. Um, and therefore, the treaty obligations that the country entered into have to be honored. I think that's all that this case needs. Uh, so I think you wanted to talk a little bit about the Trump cases uh, in terms of presidential immunity and prosecution and the ability of presidents to be subject to subpoenas. Do you want to talk about where what, what happened here? Yeah, so I would I think most of us would call this one of the blockbuster cases of the term and certainly... Uh, with respect to criminal justice. Um, and I bet I don't have to give much explanation, but the background is that um, the DA in Manhattan, Cy Vance, uh, had sent a subpoena to the president's accountants um, for the president's personal papers, including his tax returns for the purpose of a criminal investigation into Trump's financial dealings. Um, and of course, as we all know, uh, the Trump administration has blocked inquiry into anything Trump related, uh, whether it be official government business or otherwise, um, and whether it be Mr. Vance or Mr. Mueller or, or the Congress, um, they have taken the extreme position that presidents have absolute immunity from any kind of investigation whatsoever. Um, and so this was a companion case with um, 
a congressional subpoena um, also to the same organization um, seeking much of the same information, though not the tax record. So I'll talk about the congressional piece in a minute. But um, on the DA subpoena, um, the criminal subpoena, the court ruled seven to two, and in, and in the most important respect, uh, unanimously, that the president does not enjoy absolute immunity from criminal process like this. Um, this is obviously a resounding win for the rule of law, right? Um, the principle that no man is above the law had to mean something, and President Trump put that to the test with this case. The, the Supreme Court passed that test. It continues to be the rule in America, as we've all known since the founding, but from time to time needs reaffirmation, that no man is above the law. And therefore, um, Trump and Mazars will be subject to this subpoena. Um, I think the other takeaway, however, is that we continue, when we say, when we intone the term, uh, no man is above the law, we continue to mean the criminal law, right? Um, because there's law supporting Congress's ability to get the president's papers, and the decision in the congressional case was much more limited. Um, and it is going to be much tougher for Congress uh, to get these documents. In fact, um, after these opinions came down, the, uh, the petitioners in both cases uh, applied to the Supreme Court for sort of expedited um, entry of judgment. And the Supreme Court granted that in the criminal case and did not grant that in the congressional case. And so, uh, and, and uh, one other important note from the from Roberts uh, majority is that um, you know he notes the public interest in a fair and accurate judicial proceeding is at its height in the criminal setting, where our common commitment to justice demands that guilt shall not escape nor innocence suffer. So you actually hit it on the head a minute ago when you said. Um, no, this court isn't actually all that interested in fairness until a prosecutor needs something, right? Then all of a sudden, <laughs> the interest in fairness is at its height. Um, and so I find that a really disconcerting part of an otherwise very, very good opinion that um, we continue to reaffirm the primacy of the criminal law and of prosecutors to enforce the criminal law when we talk about fairness. But when it comes to things like the insanity defense this term um, or any number of other criminal protections on the defense side, all of a sudden we're not so worried about um, these principles. Um, and it also speaks to the fact that we are all or many of us are, whole, are crossing our fingers that the criminal law will somehow fix Trump or Trumpism. Um, and I think that's a misguided approach, right? Prosecuting President Trump whether now or after he gets out of office, so whether via Robert Mueller or Cy Vance, um, is not going to fix the underlying symptoms that got us Trumpism in the first place. So again, while I'm extremely happy about the baseline, the top line decision here, um, it's actually a reaffirmation of primacy of the criminal law in our society, and I actually worry a lot about that. You know, um, Justice... Uh Roberts has been, a lot of people have theorized that his kind of what I think falsely is claimed his kind of a newly found liberalism uh, is a lot of times about court legitimacy. I think obviously people are quite worried about Justice Ginsburg right now. Uh, God forbid, what do you think would be the impact on Supreme Court credibility if uh, Trump tried to appoint another justice or the GOP allowed him to appoint a justice after the election, but before the transfer of power? Oh, that is the nightmare scenario, right? And so all of us send all your ginseng uh, and other good wishes to uh, to Justice Ginsburg right now, who, who I believe has has now recovered from this later latest infection. But um, yes, uh, I think Yes, to Justice Roberts' credit, and despite the things that I've said about him um, being less than centrist or less than concerned about the legitimacy of our democracy and the criminal justice system than people would give him credit for, he did bring the court back to some sense of decency and normalcy this term, and so I'm glad about that. Um, I think even I think he would be disappointed in the result that you just or the hypo hypothetical that you just posed um and i think we would we would risk a real slide back to um a, a court that is both is partisan and is viewed as partisan and so i think this is a this is a 
fingers crossed situation. So kind of in conclusion on the term, do you, do you have any kind of overall takeaways from this term or thoughts that you have in general about uh, what we should take away from this term? Yeah, I think um, as opposed to last term where we had a few criminal justice blockbusters, um, you know, the Curtis Flowers case and others, um, plus a few that, that sort of flew under the radar but really did impact or could impact the mass incarceration complex. Um, you know, Haymond and Davis cases that really pared back on the ability of of the state to pressure folks into pleas um, and other dispositions. Um, this term, the court was less focused on those systemic issues um, and where they had a chance to, like with qualified immunity, they punted, right? So that that is just an unfortunate act about this term that we didn't make a lot of progress um, on criminal justice and, um, and in fact, maybe backslid in a few areas uh, like, uh, you know, like the, um, the insanity defense case. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, without stretching to find a thematic consistency here, I think just like the chaos of the Trump administration defines pretty much everything we do, and we're now seeing that, you know, manifest as a sort of dying star in his last couple months, sending stormtroopers into various American cities and really testing the rule of law. Um, I think this was a chaotic term at the court, right? I mean, we, we covered five cases that were sort of off menu or off schedule, right? So sort of the Supreme Court term kind of mirrored the state of the country in that we're living from emergency to emergency and the Supreme Court is being asked to step in, um, jumping from emergency to emergency. And you know, that's not good for the law. And I don't think we got a lot of positive results from that, right? Whether it's the voting rights case or the COVID case or the, the qualified immunity decision that came in the midst of of national protests, right? I don't think that's any way to run a ship. Um, so I hope, I think all of your listeners might agree that um, the next time we have this talk, we can have returned to some sense of order and um, and and refocus on the kinds of systemic injustices, particularly in the criminal justice realm that really need fixing. Well, this is the Decarceration Nation podcast. And this season, I've been asking guests if they have any unique ideas for ways we could decarcerate. But maybe in this case, it might be better to ask what you see on the horizon in terms of where we might be heading with the Supreme Court in the future. Sure. So on specific cases, you know, the Ramos case about unanimous juries uh, left open whether folks already convicted by non-unanimous juries can now reach back on collateral review and challenge those convictions. That case is Edwards v. Van Noy, and that's already up on cert. Uh, the McGirt case, the Oklahoma case, uh, could potentially apply to hundreds or thousands more indigenous people and Oklahoma, in Oklahoma and elsewhere. So that might make it all the way up. And you know we'll keep filing QI cases until the Supreme Court gets that one right too. Um, and you know, of course, the Trump administration, I think, is is going to be darkest before the dawn. Uh, so there could be challenges to things like the legality of Barr's stormtroopers in Portland um, and elsewhere. You know, now he wants to move the election. Who knows what, right? Um, but you know, in general, taking a little broader view, of course, I should I should caveat that we should never rely on the Supreme Court for for sweeping change in our area, right? In criminal justice reform, uh, we need to be out in the streets fighting um, in court in in legislatures and state houses, right? Doing the kind of work that you do. Um, but you know, given the trajectory of the last couple of years with the Curtis Flowers case, the Haymond case, Ramos, Vance. You know, I'm honestly still cautiously optimistic that we can bring smart and targeted cases that at least chip away at mass incarceration while we're doing the more revolutionary work. Uh, we just got to keep our eyes peeled for those cases. So that's where I think we're going. As you know, I always ask the same last question. How did I mess up? What questions should I have asked but did not? I think you are very good at uh, at surveying the Supreme Court term and pulling out uh, what was important. So uh, I think you nailed it, uh, and I look forward to doing this again next year. Yeah, I can't wait. This would, uh, A third year would be excellent. Uh, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for doing this. It's great to talk with you again. Uh, same with you, Josh. Looking forward to it. And now, my take. 
we are still struggling to deal with the fact that prisons are one of the core vectors for COVID circulating throughout our communities. But we also should be ashamed of ourselves for allowing the COVID to kill so many in our prisons and jails when we could have shown compassion and let people out. According to the Marshall Project, 78,526 people have tested positive in our prisons and at least 766 people have died. Almost all of the top hotspots in the United States right now for COVID are federal and state prisons. We need to remember our brothers and sisters in our prisons and jails. I don't care which branch of government intervenes, but we need governors to be more compassionate with releases and commutations, and we need courts to stand up for their previous support for pandemic conditions justifying relief. It is not okay for this to continue, and it's time for every legislator, governor, and judge to do everything they can to ensure releases for people who are most at risk from COVID in our prisons and jails. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. All proceeds will go to sponsoring our volunteers and supporting the podcast directly. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and to Kate Summers, who's still running our website and helping with our Instagram and Facebook pages, at least for a week or two more. Make sure and add us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.